turned upside down means either this time. We've done that. Right. So the Parshas Baloyscha begins the travails and the travels of the Jewish people. The travels and then immediately the travails. And it's a downward spiral. We're not going to go into the whole overall picture of it since we want to focus on one thing from Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. We find the Jews here complaining that they want meat. They want meat. They're sick and tired of the mon. And it says that the people started complaining about the mon. They also started complaining about the, on the bottom of the page, crying to their families, which is a euphemism for the fact that they were um, really complaining about the new laws of... Uh, the new strictures that they were obligated in terms of our eyes, in terms of sexual restraint. Moshe Rabbeinu in frustration says, Why did you do this problems that I have over here? Look at all the tzars. How could I bear the entire burden of these people? You place such a heavy load, such a heavy burden of people. And here Moshe Rabbeinu seems to wax off on a um, on, on a tangent, if you will. Did I give birth to them? Did I carry them? Was I pregnant? Did I give the birth to them? Did I got to carry them in my lap, in my breast? Like a, like a nursing mother will carry a, a, a suckling child. How am I going to do it? How am I going to give him meat? How am I going to provide for them meat? that they cry to me give us meat and we're going to eat it they're crying to me they want meat how am I going to provide them with all the meat I can't do it it's impossible it's too heavy for me and therefore kill me rather than I should suffer the failure or grant me help and assistance and all this kind of stuff so Moshe goes off on an uncharacteristic tangent over here which seemingly doesn't seem to have any bearing and relevance to the issue. Of course, there's a larger philosophical question here. Did Moshe Rabbeinu actually doubt the fact that it could be provided for? There's a beautiful Meshe Chochmo over here, which we also don't have time for. Why was it Moshe Rabbeinu says, I can't provide him with meat? Was Moshe Rabbeinu provide them with mon? Mon was the merit of Moshe Rabbeinu. Water, he did a lot of No, 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 but the, the Chazal tell us that the water came in this house of Miriam. The Mon came in this house of Moshe. They were complaining right now about the Mon, is what they were complaining about. That was really Moshe Rabbeinu's provision. And they wanted instead meat. So there's an understanding that we have to have as to why it was that Moshe Rabbeinu can't provide meat, but he does provide Mon, and they're complaining about it. And that's why it was really almost a personal attack that Moshe Rabbeinu felt over here. But what does this all mean? So we're not going to go into the whole philosophical issue as to, as to uh, did Moshe Rabbeinu feel a, a sense of um, that Hashem can't provide as it goes later on. But it's more, what does Moshe Rabbeinu mean with this example of being a mother carrying a child and what do they want from me and I can't do it? Let's see an interesting shot regarding this. Let's hear a quote to Gemara in Tainis Davches, Davzayin Davches. Omar Rabchama Bar Godul Yoim Hagishonim. Look outside, it's raining. Great is the day of rain. Kiyoim Shinibu Shemaim Boris. Like the day of the creation of the heaven and earth. Omar Abyechan, Abyechan goes a step further. Godul Yoim Hagishonim Kiyom Kibbutz Goliath. It's as great as the ingathering of the exiles. Shinema Shuvashem Shibisenu Kafikim Banegev. When we return, it's like the 
growth of the grass in the, the parched desert. Omer Greater is rain than the resurrection of the dead. Why? What's greater about it? is giving life to tzaddikim, but tzaddikim alone. But the powers of rain have, an, have a universal effect. That gives life and sustenance and to everybody. To tzaddikim as well as rishoyim, it's much more universal. Rabbi says, no, they're not greater, it's equal. Because, because of the fact that and rainfall are on the same level, that's why, where do you say the brach of rain? In the brach of Shmon We say, the second brach in Shmon Esrei is known as Gvuros. The second bracha, Atah Gibor, is known as Gvuras, the power and might of God. So we say, what is the power and the might of God? The ability to resurrect the dead. Why is that called the power of God? Because unlike the power of man, man is considered powerful when he destroys life. Right? Who's considered a powerful person? A, a warrior. A warrior. A warrior, a guy that kills people. Conqueror. A conqueror. The one, he could kill 20 people in one shot. A boxer. I know Atah Gibor, she seems so very nice. But in the belt, the power of man. Ah, you're right. You're right. The truth is that that, that that's also related over here. We'll see. This is Gemara Tainus. Yeah. Why you must have recently learned? What? Gemara Tainus. The power of a human being is to kill people. A boxer, right? Uh, Mike Tyson is the greatest boxer. What is his power? His power is he can knock more people down. That's the power of man. The power of God is just the opposite, it's to revive the dead. Human beings are powerful when they could take living people and make them dead. God's power is he takes dead people and he makes them alive. Or, you're, what you're saying is correct, the true power is controlling your Yates or Hara, and uh, I don't think Mike Tyson is that great, and that powerful when it comes to that. But the fact is, like the Chayvah Salvavos brings down in the name of the philosopher, when he saw these warriors, these conquering war heroes coming back from the great battles, he said, now you left the small war, now you're coming back to fight the big battle, the greatest battle of all, which is against your own Yetzir Haram. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, sometimes we find the concept of Gvur in that regard as well, where Hashem has to hold back, so to speak, from the natural way of the spiritual realm, the way the mechanism of the spiritual world operates, Hashem has to sometimes go intervene and, and overturn it. That's also considered power in the realm of God. But it's interesting, so therefore we find because rainfall is considered to be an act equivalent to to resurrection in terms of the power, so we place it in the part of the tefillah that talks about God's power. That's what we say. You, O Lord, are powerful forever. You are able to revive the dead. You are mighty in salvation. And right over there we insert Mashiv Horuah Dagoshem. Right? You revive the dead. God's power is with the strength of mercy. In fact, I don't remember who recalls the um, the Orachim Hakadosh when we learned Tefillin. The Kasha is. 
you're supposed to wear it filmed on your left arm. Why? Because God took us out with His powerful arm. So the question is, if that's God's powerful arm, then why do we wear it filmed on the left? We should wear it filmed on the right. Says the Archaim, that's not God's greatest arm. That's the arm of what we call power in terms of punishment to punish the Egyptians. That's the Yad HaChazoka. The Yad HaGdola. The great arm of God, that's the right arm. Because that's the arm of embrace. That's the arm of mercy. The right side of God is mercy. So Hashem's Gevura, His true Gevura, is mercy. The power of God to resurrect the dead comes from the right side of God. The right side of God, which is the more powerful portion of God, His right arm, His power, is most, His greatest arm is the power of mercy with which He revives the dead and He supports life as well. And that's the arm of Tchias as well as rainfall. So rainfall is on the same level as Tchias HaMesim. Why don't we put one on our right arm? No, no, because Hashem took us out of Egypt with Chozek Yad. The Yad HaChazok of Hashem is the left side. That's called the side that He uses for punishment. So the, right, the left side is for punishment. Well, we call Kavur the power of destruction, of destroying and punishment, where He destroys the Egyptians. Mimini Michoel, that's the right side. Nismoli Gavriel, the Gavriel, the angel that Hashem employs to smite the Assyrians or the Egyptians or whoever it is, that's Gavriel, that's on the left side. That's the side. You discipline with the left, you embrace with the right. So that's what we so can relate to the left? Yeah, because, because we're doing it corresponding to what God did with the Egyptians. That's not the way, the optimal way. The optimal way was the Egyptians should have done tshuva and that it shouldn't have been necessary to give ten plagues to the Egyptians. The optimal way would have been that, that the world should find fulfillment through mercy and the Egyptians should do tshuva and they should become B'nai Noah. The fact that Hashem is forced to show His might and power with destruction, plagues and ten makos and kill the Egyptians, that's the left side of God, which to us relates to power. That's what we said. Human warriors kill. God, His main suit is to bring back to life, the creation of life. So all of the things that are mentioned over here that are things that relate to Hashem, creation of the world. I'm plagued with the same Me too. I just forgot to What's that? I don't understand. What's that guy if, the, if the right hand of God is the merciful one, and uh, yes. why don't we put it on the right? So it seems. I mean, we're not putting on the phone, or maybe I'm mistaken. Just to remember, okay. uh, Yitzhak Smith's right. Yes, we are. We are. We're putting on. Yes, it is. Tefillin is a remembrance of Yitzhak Smith's rhyme, as it says explicitly in the pasuk. It says it clearly. Okay. What the Orchaim just says is that the word Yad Hazaka is not the same as Yad Hagdola. Yad Hagdol implies the greater of the arms. Yad Hachazaka implies the stronger arm. With us, our greater arm is our stronger arm. With God, it's not the same thing. But Yad Hachazaka is the right arm. Ours. Yes. With God's, it's not. God's strong arm, so to speak, where he uses strong arm tactics, is his weaker arm. It's well, the left arm. Because his right arm, he would destroy the world. Be right arm is for mercy. God's greater arm is merciful. Since we were able to see a manifestation of not God's greater arm, when you see as we try and we saw a manifestation of God's powerful arm. To us, we think of it as stronger, but it's not true. It's not the stronger arm of God. It's the arm of strength. 
rather than the stronger arm. It's not relative to God. Relative to God is the weaker arm, but it's the arm of strength. It's the arm of power and might, which is his left arm. We learned this once, right? You know. The strength of Hashem, what we see from this film ultimately is that the true strength of Hashem is the Midas Harachli, which is the right side. Midas Hadin and punishment is the left side. That's Yad HaChazoka. Yad HaChazoka versus Yad Hagdola is what the Orachim says. For us, we always, that's what the Orachim is trying to explain to us. We have a mistaken impression of the word Yad HaChazoka. We assume Yad HaChazoka, ooh, strong arm, that must be the right arm. No, 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 Yad HaChazoka by God is not the strong arm. By us it is, but by God it's not. Now, in terms of Richard's Kash, Richard's Kash is that it says in Oz Yashir, Hashem Ishmael Choma, Hashem Shemo. God, using the name of Hashem, Yudke Vavke, is a man of war. Hashem, the name Yudke Vavke, Shemo is his name. So what do we see? We see that, that the name Yudke Vavke was employed in the destruction of the Egyptians by the, by the Yamsuf. So we're talking about the merciful name of God is the one that's being used. And he's quoting Rashi over there in the art school. So let's take a look at the original source of Rashi. Rashi says, I'll just read it for you, not to bother looking. Dovarachim. This is what he's referring to. Hashem Shemoy. God is his name. Even at the same moment when Hashem is busy vanquishing his enemies and fighting them and destroying his enemies. When Hashem is being an Ishmael Choma, even at the moment of being a warrior when he's punishing, he still has to pull his punches at the time. He has to grab on to his midah, to be merciful to all of his creatures, in order to feed all the creatures of the world. Not like human kings. When a guy is a warrior, now I'm rolling up my sleeves, I'm ready to punch. Don't come to me now with appeals for mercy. And don't start saying I should commute someone's sentence. Right now I'm, I'm busy doing war. When you're in the middle of war, you get rid of all your other endeavors. You don't do both. And you don't do, certainly you don't do contradictory things. Hashem, even at the moment where you see him punishing people, still has to be Hashem. He still has to provide for the needs of humankind and the world and the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom. Everything has to support all of them. That's what you see over here in this in this paragraph that he's quoting now from the Gemara Titus. Rainfall, which is the life-giving power of growth, and where you see life budding out of the ground, is an indication of HaKadosh Baruch Hu providing for the world. And that's Hashem's mercy. That's a continuation of creation. We say it every day. Hashem has to daily renew the act of creation. Because the act of creation was to bring forth life into the universe that was empty of life. Hashem has to daily do that. He has to constantly bring life to maintain the life that He originally created. So that's what He starts off saying. Great is the day of rainfall, like the day of creation. Because it's an extension of the creative process where Hashem is concerned that the world should still maintain life. That there should still be life. It's interesting, even when sometimes man messes up, Hashem has to come in and clean up the environment after us. Even now they're discovering, well, the global warming isn't as bad as they think it is, and a lot of the gloom and doom predictions aren't really that bad. 
I mean, certainly mankind is capable of destroying his environment. And that's why we're given commandments regarding the destruction of the environment, such as Baal But in the overall picture, Hashem is still maintaining the world and He has to constantly renew life even when we cause death. I mean, you go through some of the places where there was nuclear destruction in the islands of the Pacific, all of a sudden you find budding of life. Even though mankind is being so destructive, we're using mamish the forces of creation. We're transferring, um, you know, matter into energy. We're converting it into energy. It's almost like a replica of creation that man does, and man does it for the purpose of destruction. Again, going back to the gevura, Hashem uses the the creation of matter and energy as a creative force. The sun, which has nuclear fuel in it, is a life-giving power. If not for the sun, there wouldn't be life on Earth. The sun causes photosynthesis. The sun causes plant life as well as animal life. And the whole process of life in this world is all from the sun. But what is the sun? The sun is what happens when we blow up an atom bomb or a hydrogen bomb. Right? That's what it is. But when God does it, it's creative. It's constructive. When man does it, it's destructive. That's what the Gemara says. The gvur of man is to destroy. We'll use the power that God gives us and it destroys. When God uses that same destructive force, it's a life-giving force. It gives life to the earth. That's, that's life. And that, that's not only true with the sun. That's why we say every day in the morning, We say it on a daily basis. God gives forth the light. He creates darkness. He makes peace. He puts it all in harmony. Because ultimately that's the way it works. It works that God has to place it in harmony where you need all of the interdependency of all these ecological systems of where you have the plankton doing their things and the sharks doing theirs and the scavengers eating theirs and all of this and the bacteria it all produces life that's what he has to make peace he has to make peace with all the different forces of nature all the seemingly where you take each one it's a destructive force and when man takes it even man thinks it's a creative force we destroy things God puts it all together and what you have is is Oseh Sholom, he makes peace, Uvore es and he thereby creates everything. Hameir l'oretz v'ador molab rachamim, mercy, uftuvo mechadish mechol yom tomid masev reishis. In his goodness and kindness, he renews every day, masev reishis, the original creation. That's what he's saying over here. Great is the day of rain, where we're able to witness God bringing the ability of the earth to produce from the parched soil new buddings of life. Because God created the world, He didn't forsake it. He's constantly concerned with maintaining it. The maintenance of life is as great as the creation of life. The maintenance, continues Rabbi Yechelon, great is the day of rainfall like the salvation of the Jewish people. Great is the day of rainfall greater than Tchiyas HaMesim. Because the mercy that's involved in rainfall is a universal aspect of life to everything. Whereas Tchiyas HaMesim is going to be selected. It's going to be select individuals. If you're worthy, you earn it. Sure, life, sure God is bringing you back to life. And it's an act of gavura, power and strength. It's an act of mercy. But the mercy that's involved in Tchiyas HaMesim is for those that are deemed worthy of it. There's greater mercy involved in having the seeds bud forth life to maintain the world for the dumb animals out there. Animals don't have Tchiyas HaMesim. Because they don't deserve it. But that animals should live, they should have grass to eat, that the cows should have grass, and that and that spiders and flies and 
everything else should have what to, to feed off of and then the bees should have their pollen. That's a greater act of mercy. Rishoyim, even when the Egyptians are drowning, even at that time, God has to still provide for the whole world. So Tchiyas HaMesim is going to be select, but it's going to be select because you earned it. The mercy that's being demonstrated by rainfall is a more universal mercy. It's to everybody. That's what the flooding is. It's a well. Obviously, there's a greater comparison there than what I was just saying. I'm talking in the sense of mercy, but the truth is, there's a there's another analogy there from Tchias Amesim and and the sprouting of life from the earth. Because when man is buried into the ground, his body, and then it should sprout forth, like the in fact the Gemara in Sanhedrin, talking Perik makes draws that analogy. Says Cleopatra. Asked for mayor, it's probably not the same Cleopatra, Cleopatra frame with Mark Anthony because that would have been about a hundred years earlier. But one of the Cleopatras asked Remeyer, I guess this was on her mind a lot, she says that when the dead are resurrected, are they going to come out naked or are they going to come out with their clothing? Because I mean, after all, your body, you know, deteriorates and the clothing and everything else. So when God's going to put you back together again, how are you going to come out? You're going to come out naked or are you going to come out wearing clothing? I mean, yes, then provide you with clothing. And that would be a, I mean, the truth is her kasha is really a very good kasha when you think about it. I, mean, I don't know why her mind was on it, but it's a good kasha when you think about it. Because Tchiyas HaMesim is a miracle which a person is worthy of because he earns it and everything else. So your body comes back and it sprouts life. But what does that have to do with where the clothes are going to come from? I mean, God's going to have to then weed clothes for you. That's, that's another miracle which doesn't directly relate to Tchiyas HaMesim. Well, you'll come back perfect like like uh, like other Mauritian. You don't need clothes. Well, I, Prior good. To that, that's, but clothes. Maybe that's part of her question. Her question is: Are we going to come back and we're going to need clothing or we're not? Or whatever the case is. But but still, when you think about it from a very practical standpoint, it involves another miracle which seemingly is unrelated and doesn't seem to fit into Tchias Mason. Mm-hmm. Says her mayor, no problem. Take a look at wheat. When wheat come forth, the edible part comes out in its um, kernels. And there's all kinds of glorious buddings and and an accompaniment to the wheat. So Hashem provides wheat in a very glorious way. And that's true with wheat. Why can't it be true with human beings as well? That we're going to come out in all of our glory. Now, it's interesting the analogy to wheat as well, because if you hold that Eitz Hadas was the wheat. So this goes back to what Eddie was just saying right now, which is that the same that at one time wheat was edible and didn't have the parts that were unedible. So maybe he's saying sort of like the same thing. If we're going to come back in our neshama, our bodies become the clothing, the garment of our neshama. Just like the wheat should have been. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's Again, that's what the Gemara says. What's the point of all this? That we see that the metaphor for Tchiyas HaMesim is the same thing as grain sprouting from the earth. You put a seed in, it's dead. It has to germinate. It has to fall apart. And then it sprouts out into a glorious... Um, stalk of wheat which looks beautiful as well as becomes edible likewise human beings bodies placed into the earth it comes out in all of its glory even to the point of where you could have clothing just like the wheat has clothing you could have clothing as well so you find the same kind of a comparison over here yeah the phone call if you realize that that even nowadays in israel it only rains during the rainy season and it goes precisely with what the ground needs through the summer season not people look forward anxiously for the rain because that's what provides them with life. Now, in the days of Chazal and earlier, part of the Imbuchukosai Telechu was Mnasati Gishmechem Bitom. 
I'm going to give rainfall in the proper season, in the proper time. It only came Friday night, Wednesday night, and Friday night people were home. It was only in the rainy season. Rain was a very directed kind of a way of Hashem showing Hashgach protest, divine providence, through rainfall. Nowadays we're living in a time when, when it rains all through the year. But it wasn't like that in, in Eretz Yisrael. So for us we've already been sort of, you know, uh, we don't really view it so much. We don't really see it. But they were able to see more of a demonstration of how HaKadosh Baruch Hu provides life to the world where they're waiting anxiously for the rain. Finally the rain comes, it provides them with life. The whole Masech Tainus, where this is all based on, deals mainly to a great extent with the fast days that were done when there was a lack of rainfall. And therefore we find in Chazal, when there was a drought and there was a famine that results from it, they would call, go and daven and say certain things and Rabbi Akiva would say, Ovinu Malkein, when the rain would start coming, all those stories are all stories of rainfall. So to them, to Chazal, they were able to see rain as visible proof of God's intervention with the world. We don't see that nowadays. Because firstly, we only need rainfall so that our grass should look green. And otherwise, if not, so we'll water the lawn with uh, sprinklers. But we don't see rain as giving us life. We know indirectly that it's like that, but we don't really see a visible proof of that. We know that without rainfall, this drought is going to be problems. But I mean, to them, they were, able, they were totally dependent on it, and they saw that when God held back, it was a problem, and when God gave, it was an act of mercy. And they saw the relationship between tefillah and tainus and rainfall as well. So to them, it was more of a visible proof. Chazal in general lived, besides the fact that they were greater than us, and therefore Hashem listened to their prayers, and once you're in Israel, you could see it more. But in general, they were more in touch with the natural world than we are. You know, sunrise was a zman from tefillah. Kriyashma. The, the rhythms of life. Even, even the way they told, they were able to tell time at night. The donkey's praying is the first third of the night. The dogs are howling. It's midnight. They lived with nature. And they saw an interaction. And as a result, they were closer to Hashem. And Hashem paid back in kind, as we shall see. That's really the point. The point is that because we're more distant, God is more distant from us, and we don't really see a demonstration of Hashem's power through these things. If we would live proper lives, and we'd live the way they live, we would be able to see this much more clearly. And the last statement that he makes is that it's like the day of the giving of the Torah. And again, because the Torah is compared to water, the Torah provides for the thirst of the soul, like the water provides life. Remember, that's the, the word that my um, said over from Rav Hutner. Come all ye thirsty and drink water. And he says, why is Torah compared to water? That you're thirsty, drink water. Because the halacha is that whenever you make a bracha, on all foods and on all drinks and all liquids, you always make a bracha whether you're thirsty or not. The reason is because everything has a flavor to it. And therefore you are giving a bracha on the pleasure that you derive from the flavor. Because water has no flavor, the halacha is you only make, you only make a bracha on water if you're thirsty. If you're not thirsty, you do not make a bracha. Because water has no taste. Therefore, if you take medicine, and you have to drink a little water to get the medicine down, you don't make a bracha on the water. Only when you're thirsty do you make a bracha. Why? Because water satisfies only when you're thirsty. Water doesn't satisfy if you're not thirsty. And water is directed. It was given by Hashem to, to satiate a world and to produce life. I mean, just think of it this way. Diet Coke doesn't fall down to make uh, the grass grow. Right? Diet Coke is only there for us to, to, uh, to be able to drink and not get fat from it and to feel the pleasure. Even, even seltzer doesn't fall down. But the fact is, 
So what produces the grass? What produces the flowers, the wheat? Certainly it's not soda, it's not coffee, it's not tea. It's only water. So water was created to give life. Well, that's what water is there for. It's to give life. Water, therefore, only satisfies the person when he is thirsty. If you're thirsty, water satisfies you, and then you give, and you make a broth. And then it satisfies you real good. If you're really thirsty, water quenches a thirst. Sending with tar. Tar was likewise directed to the soul of the human being like water. It's not supposed to be sugar-coated. Unlike water that's flavored into soda pop. Unlike things that are flavored in order to make it appealing. Tar is there to give life. It doesn't have to be sugar-coated. So therefore Torah is compared to water. So rainfall and Torah likewise have the same kind of comparison. One satisfies the body, the other satisfies the soul, and therefore is saying that when Hashem provides rain, He's showing a mercy to the world to, to give it physical life and sustenance, just like the Torah gives to the soul, to the spirit. That's the beautiful Gemara in the Sechtes Tainus. Now, let's go weiter. Next paragraph. Now that we see that rain is so great that Chazal compared it to the most to the most loftiest things in creation, such as Shemayim Oretz, Kibbutz Goliath, Chiyas Amesim, Matan etc. It makes a person start thinking. What then is this force? that brings rain. What is the force that causes rain to fall? What is the merit that's used What is this great merit that allows that Hashem should provide us with rainfall? What is this force that, that sets things in motion where Hashem will provide rainfall? So the Gemara, he quotes now a different Gemara in Mesechus Tainus, also in the same place, Davchesom and Aleph and Tainus. Omru Chazal Ravami, next paragraph, Rain falls in the merit of those that are faithful. Those that have faith and keep their words as well. The word amona could be understood variously from the, it comes of course from the word amuna, which is where the word amen comes from. But it could either mean faith in Hashem, in terms of amuna, and also that you keep your word. You're amen, you're, you're, you're nemon, you're trustworthy. You do the MS. Quotes an interesting thing here. There's a Gemara in Shabbos. The Gemara in Shabbos goes into the fact over there that they ask each person after you die, did you learn Torah? Where it says, So it says the six words used over there in Yeshaya, where each one refers to a different Seder in Shas. So, different one of the six orders of the Mishnah. The one that refers to Zeroyim, which is the growth, the agricultural portion of the Gemara, is the word that says Emuna, Emunas, Zeh Seder Zeroyim. Tyson says, what does it mean? Why is Seder Zeroyim, the Mishnayis, compared to the word Emuna? He says, because, Shemaimin B'chai Olamim, because you have to have faith to plant. For the farmer to go through what he's doing, he has to have faith that there's going to be rain, and all his work is not going to naught. See, so he has to have faith, you have faith in Hashem, and that's why you plant. You believe in God and you trust Him. That He'll bring rain. 
Therefore, you will, therefore he plants his, um, his field. And therefore the merit of, I guess I'm missing a line over here. And therefore the merit of people like that, that's where rain comes from. Rain comes out of faith. The Gemara in Tainas continues with the following interesting story. See how great are the is the power of people that are faithful and and have faith and trust in something. Where do we know it from? We know it from the weasel and the pit. And and if you see the results of he who has faith in weasels and in pits, that he's rewarded for that faith, certainly if you have faith in Hashem, all the more so. What is the story of the weasel and the pit? So he quotes here a Rashi. He quotes here a Rashi, which is a very shortened version of a, of a story that the Ein Yaakov brings down at greater length. Let's read first the Rashi's Pshat and Taisis. He says over there, it's referring to a story of a Bachar that gave his word and his promise to a young maiden that he'll marry her. And he gave his word, he says, who's going to testify that you're going to keep it? So he says, the weasel in the pit. They're going to testify. The Bachar one day abrogates his promise to her. He marries another woman. He has two children. One falls into the pit and dies. The other falls. The other gets bit by the weasel and dies as well. That's the story that Rashi brings down. Let's go through the story in the Ein Yaakov, though, on top of the page. It's a very interesting story. So that's worth going through. It's a little bit of fluff over here. Before you get the story. Ein Yaakov quotes from the Aruch, where he brings a greater version. And he says the following. Mice in the second line there. Maisa Benara, story about this young maiden, she was on her way, tramping through the woods, third line. She was going to her grandmother's house, right? She was going to her mother's house. Yeah, not bad. Pretty close. Pretty close to the Little Red Riding Hood story with the big bad wolf. In fact, maybe that's where the Riding Hood story comes from. Yeah. She's on her way to her mother's house. And she was wearing a red hood with a basket of goodies. No. Vahoysa <laughs> Mukushetes, but it's close. I mean, listen to the story, the interesting parallels. Vahoysa Mukushetes, Biklikesa Vizov. She was decked out in gold and silver jewelry. Vigam Yifas Taya. There's a Jewish red riding hood. Yeah, yeah, right. She doesn't wear red riding hood. She has different oh. kinds of goodies. So she was decked out in gold and jewelry, and she was also very beautiful. Vitata Baderach. And as she's going through the woods, she gets lost in the woods. She gets lost in the woods. And she goes on and on and she's lost and there is no, there's nobody around. Comes a wolf. No. When she gets around noon, walking all day, summer, she's very thirsty. She I guess the escort, I don't know what that means exactly here. Ross of the air. She sees a well. The chevel shall lead kosher, and the wells attached. There's a, there's a uh, pail, a bucket over there. This combination of Jack and Jill story as well. That was tied to it. and she lowers herself. The yard the she goes into the pit, but she's very thirsty. 
she drinks as much as she needs. Big shalalos, she tries to raise herself. She finds she's not able to. She couldn't get up. She's down at the bottom of the well and she's stuck. After a while, you get a little claustrophobic. So she starts crying and screaming, Help, help! Over a a certain person walks by, Vishama Karli, he hears a sound emanating from the well. So can you imagine you hear cries of help coming from the well? He stands by the, by the mouth of the well, he hits it, and he looks down. But he looks down, and in the shadows he doesn't see anything. Omar he says to her, Are you a human or are you a demon? What are you? I don't see anything. Well, I hear a sound. Omrasa, she says, I'm, I'm a human being. Get me out of here. She tells him the whole story. Omar, he says to her, If I take you out, will you marry me? Kinosili, rather, will you marry me? Omrohen says, Yeah, anything you want, I'll do it. Hela, he brings her out. He sees what a raving beauty she is. He didn't want to wait. He didn't want to wait till he gets to town to marry her. So he wanted to immediately have relations right on the spot. Omrohen, so she says to him, this is reminiscent of the story of Dovr HaMelech with Abigail. Right? In the way that he meets her, you know, the story with Aishas Novel HaKarmeli, where the Gemara says, that's another story for another time, Dovr HaMelech with Abigail. Omer lo me'eza amato. What kind of person are you? Omer lo me'mokam ploini. I'm from here with Koyin, I mean. I'm a Koyin. Because not only is he a Jew, but he's a Koyin. Omer says, Afani me'mokam ploini. I come from the same city. Me'mishpocha ploinis. From this family, the Nayodam. Nikuve Shemi tells her the name. Very, very distinguished family. Omrullah, so she tells him, I'm Kodesh Kemaischa. You are a holy nation. You're a Kayan. She gives him a little Musr over here. She says, God chose you. Mikol Yisrael from all the Jews. And you want to do like an animal? But like Kedushin without the benefit of marriage. Uksuba without Uksuba. No, she's willing to marry him. But he says, but not over here. Let's wait yeah. till we do it right. Let's get a Jewish wedding. Boy, it's a lovey vimi. Come to my father and mother, and we'll do it right. Bani uh-huh. We're gonna I'll get engaged. We'll go through. We'll make a nice vort, a nice party. She, she wanted to have the kids to a wedding ceremony. He had one thing on his mind, and she had something else. He wanted right away, and she wanted a nice. She imagined this big wedding where she's gonna have this big party and everything. No, but the she gives a nice musr. So they draw a treaty amongst them, a covenant, where they give themselves guarantees and they say, you know what, okay, we're going to get married, and they promise each other, he, gave, he proposes to her, is what happens really. Omar, so, so he says, what's going to be the witness to our, that, that's what a vort is all about. A vort and the tenoyim, that's what they do. They draw up a document saying that this, this young lad, this young boy, young man rather, promises to marry this young woman. And they draw a document and there's witnesses and people sign. So when you have a Tanoim, which is the engagement party, the Vort, you actually have a document signed by witnesses saying that they are now engaged to be married. And you can't break that. In fact, there's all kinds of halachas about breaking that. According to some, it's worse to break a Vort than to get married and to get divorced. Because that's a pledge. Pledge is a very important thing. It says, who's going to be a witness to our pledge? 
Yeah. He says, Mi yeid, who's going to be the pledge? Voice of Chulda Achas Severus. At that moment, a weasel ran by. Omar Law, Hashemayim. He says to her, By the heavens, Chulda Zu Ubeirzeh, the well that I just drew you out from, and this weasel that ran by, you Aiden. Let them be the witnesses. Sheinon Umechazen Zebezeh, that we're not going to. That we're not going to abrogate our pledge to each other. We won't lie to each other. So what happens? Each one went their own merry old way. She went to her grandmother's house, or to her mother's house, wherever she was going. And he went to wherever he was going on his business trip. In other words, he was able to, uh, she was able to assuage his great passion of the moment and said, let's put it off a little bit till we get married. So he went on his merry old way. She went on her way. <laughs> Hanara Omdo Bemunasa. She kept her part of the bargain. And as we said, she was a very beautiful girl. Cholmisha Toiva. Whoever came to her, people, she was getting a lot of proposals. She would come up with all kinds of reasons not to marry, but she wanted to keep her pledge to this guy. She was waiting for him. She was waiting for her Prince Charming. Kibin Sheikh Zikuba. They would be even they'd really be tough on her. People would actually grab her and say, No, you must marry me. Like, you know. People were really hot for her. They wanted, they wanted to marry her. And she would. She really felt a lot of pressure. They'd really pressure her very strongly using literally strong-arm tactics to marry her. So what she would have to do is she was like, oh, you know, she'd act like she was, she was a little temporarily insane or something. She would pretend to be insane. She even start ripping her clothes. And that's a sign of being, you know, like these homeless guys over there, you know going around pants she starts ripping her clothes to show that she's everybody was uh, it's okay I don't need this kind of a girl so she would actually in order to keep her pledge make herself look like a fool like an insane person and anybody that touched her apparently people would actually physically grab a hold of her because they would be interested in marrying her and do much more to her so they would physically grab a hold of her when she would start doing that she'd start going berserk and start ripping her clothes and ripping off the clothes of the guy that's over there that, that's grabbing her. That's what she did. What? I don't know. And she would start ripping the clothes of those that touched her. So people hang out. The girl starts doing that, you run away from her. That, that, that's better than a cold shower. That was what she did. No, she was very faithful. She kept her faith. What did he do? What did he do? As typical of all men, when he went away from her, he forgot about her altogether. You know, out of mind, out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. You know, that's typical of men. I mean, this is very typical male reaction. She keeps her faith. She keeps her her pledge to her prince charming, and he okay. Another pretty head. Another pretty head turns this thing. That's it. So he goes to the other one. He forgets about it, and and he doesn't care to keep his. I mean, very typical. And he doesn't care to keep his pledge to her. And he forgets about her. I mean, he was only interested in her looks to start with. So he finds somebody else. And once she's out of sight, out of mind. Venosa Isha, he marries a woman. She gets pregnant. She gives birth to a little boy. When the child was three months old, he's strangled in his crib by a weasel. Void Nisabra, she's pregnant again. Viola Ben, she gives birth to a child, I guess this one gets a little bit older. And he's walking around, he falls into a sinkhole. The Nofal of Bor, 
falls into a pit. Omra Ishtai, his wife says twice, this is, this is unusual, Im Kiderich B'nei Adam Hayu Mesim, if they would have died natural deaths, into mortality. Ha'isi Amir Tzidok Hadin, his wife was a person that had faith in Hashem. I would have said, God is the judge, and whatever God does, He knows what He's doing. That I would have said if they would have died natural deaths. Crib death. They died such unnatural, uncommon deaths. Something's going on here. This cannot be without a sin. Look at what she's saying. She's saying divine providence would have been a good enough answer. Children die. Yeah. I don't have to search out a reason why children die. God knows what He's doing. But I see something unusual over here. The fact that I see something unusual is an indication of the fact that there's something that, that we're being punished for. That there's sin over here. That means what she's in effect saying. You can learn a lot from this, from this woman, philosophically. That when some things happen in the world, that's the way of the world. That's what he's saying. But this is unusual. Something has to be unusual here. And there's something that's, that's trying to tell us a message. We're being signaled with something. Tell me about your past. Tell me about your background a little bit. Come on, out with the skeletons. Gila he knew what was going on. He tells her the whole story. He knew that he that, that, that there's some girl waiting for him that he made a promise to and he put her up over there and he's, you know, left her off. He tells her the story. And he divorced her. Now you're all going to ask me, why does he have to divorce her? So that, this goes back to Rashi's original version because part of the pledge that they made was that he's not going to marry anybody else. In other words, they're going to be loyal and faithful just to each other and he won't take on another wife. It's not a question of, okay, I'll marry five more. So therefore, in order to keep his pledge, he divorced this wife. Omer lo leich eitzel chalkechal. This is a wise woman that he married. I mean, he really got a good shidduch over here. She says to him, go to your, desti- your destiny, to your portion. Shenosan l'cha kodesh bohu. Obviously, it's God's will. God will that you should pass by the pit at that right time. And he rescues her, and as a result, hey, that's exactly what happened. She was in the pit. And could be that's originally also why they made the pledge. Because they saw this as being preordained by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They saw that, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, this was the destiny. Right? That's what they saw. So he's saying, go back to your destiny. HaKadosh Baruch Hu obviously preordained that this is who you should marry. So he goes on. And Shanos Mucha Kodesh Baruch Hu Holach Vishoal Be'ira So what does he do? He goes to look for her He goes to her city And he starts making inquiries There's a certain girl over here by this name And because now he feels really obligated to it After all he felt this wasn't a chance coincidence That she should be in the world That he should pass by Obviously this is preordained They saw this as, as his destiny so she's looking for her. He goes to the city and he inquires about her. Armulos, they say, there's a, there's a girl over here, but she had a nervous breakdown. She's an epileptic. She has seizures. Whenever someone approaches her, she's, uh, she hates men or something. She starts falling into a frenzy and everything. Nichfis, she's a little bit, you know, crazy. Epileptic fits. Holach He goes to her father. Pirishly kolamas, and he tells her the story. Omar lay an imikabel mumel. I'll accept. I'll take her the way she is. Because now he wants to do his his uh, his duty. I'll take her with the way she is. Boetzlo, he goes to her. His chilulasa is kiminhaga. 
as soon as she sees him, she right away starts going into this epileptic seizure. She then tells him the story. I got a story to tell you. I had one son strangled by a chulda. Another one had fell into the pit. So she tells him, Oh, I kept my part of the bargain. So she she felt good. The truth is, it sounds over here that she talked she talked, did get a nervous breakdown and she talked, was sick. And now, when when this thing finally played itself out, she became cured. She became normal. And they had many, many children and they became wealthy to boot. And regarding them, the Pasuk says, my eyes are on those that are faithful. That's just being faithful. That's very interesting story. Interesting yeah, story. Do not send that to the well to get water. Right. His wife was the first. The Gomorrah the Gemara says, if having faith in a pit and in a weasel produces this kind of a result, Kavuchem, if you have faith in Hashem, that's what the Gemara wants to say with this. Let's explain this. He says, Shomayim b'chul d'bara. What's going on here? Nira loimar. He tells us a very important concept. When a person places his faith fervently in anything, even in a chuld on a bar, you are empowering it. Faith is empowering, is what he's saying. And therefore, that's why they were empowered to pay him back. Certainly, all the more so. Certainly you empower Hashem. Hashem is all powerful to start with. He's almighty. If you could empower a pit and a weasel, you could certainly empower God who has all power to do your bidding and that your faith should have. In other words, faith is empowering. It's interesting. Because we have this all the time. Whenever you always have, I mean, we're going through, ever since they came up with this this business about driving without a license. We've had a rash of people driving without licenses, killing people. You know, when people's minds are focused, it's almost as if the thing becomes empowered. That thing becomes, it, it's an amazing thing. You know, when people are focused on earthquakes, you start having them all over the world. When it's the hurricanes, once people are focused on something, the weirdest things happen. Like this, that's what Chazal is saying. Take a look at the weird story. They place their faith in a pit and a weasel. And look what happens from it. So, what does that tell you? That tells you that faith is an empowering thing. Now, we've already learned on other occasions that Hashem reciprocates midah connected midah. Hashem is the mirror image of what you are. If that's the case, then when you have faith in Hashem, it certainly is an empowering mechanism whereby Hashem fulfills your faith through faith alone. Zehu ma'ashamru. That's what the Gemara means. She'ein that's what it means rain comes because of those that are faithful by having faith in God and possibly one can even say that this will be true even with those that don't believe in God that believe only in nature but having faith does something you have faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu to bring down rain rain will come Rain will come 
in that merit. They give power to creation. Nice is over here, beautiful shot as well. Dorish Rabavira. Interesting, this Rabavira is a very rare person to find in Chazal, but we just had him over the past couple of days. He's the same one that says the Gemara in Brochus over there about the fact that why Hashem grants favor and grace to Jews. He's nice to take Shaykh because Jews bench even on less than a full meal, even on less than satiation. It's the same person. So now listen to what he says over here. This, by the way, is a halacha. We learn from this halacha. And it spits into that Gemara and Brachas. A person should always eat and drink. You should eat less than you could afford. Less than you need. Because when it comes to food and drink, do a little bit less. Less than you could afford. Dress according to your means. Dress according to your station in life. Eat less than your station in life. Dress according to your station in life. You shouldn't be embarrassed. People should recognize who you are. So when it comes to food on a personal level, eat less. When it comes to the image that you portray to the people around you, you have to appear according to your station in life. When it comes to your family, you should give to your wife and children more than you could afford. Right? You got to spend on your wife. It, it, it works out. In other words, on food, the, the money that you save on your food, you spend on your wife is really what it comes out to. <laughs> it works out. Right? You, you, you can afford it. So when it comes to food, you got to hold back on eating so that you have extra money now. On clothing, you spend the quantity you could afford. On your wife and kids, you got to spend more than you could afford. So it works out even. You don't shoot anyway. Yeah. No, it's interesting. This, by the way, is really what Allah means when it says you should be mechabit your wife, more than your own body. What that really means is that you should spend on her and support her and give her more than what you consider for yourself. More than you can afford. It really deals with money. The bottom line is that it deals with money. Yeah. Don't worry, they do it anyway. Yeah. But, now this is where Chaim Shmulev is a very beautiful shot Because he focuses on the next part of the Gemara. This, this part of the Gemara is known. Everybody knows this halacha. Shehein Kluyin Boy, because they are dependent on him. They are dependent on the man for support. He is dependent on God. What does that mean? That they're dependent on him. Who now? It's based on the principle which he just mentioned. They're dependent on him for support. Their eyes are looking to him for support. They have faith in him, in other words. Precisely because they have faith in him, he is given power to support them. In other words, people that have faith in you, Hashem empowers you to take care of them. That's why Chazal say, Support them more than you could afford. Why? Because they're dependent on you and you're dependent on God and there's power in God to empower you to support them according to their needs of you. Because God's boundaries are limitless. God doesn't make any limitations. It depends on how much faith. Well, if they have faith in you and you have faith in Hashem, you can spend on them as much as they need and as much as they have faith in you. 
According to the measure of faith, to that measure, you will be able to reward them according to their requests and their desires and their needs. As to why is your family is dependent on you and you're dependent on Hashem. Therefore, if they're dependent on you, you could provide. Hashem will allow you to provide according to, to their dependencies. And that's what people sometimes say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, don't give me for myself. But all these people are dependent on me. And this is true spiritually as well. When people are dependent on a Rav, on a Rosh Hashivah, he has to be empowered by Hashem because all these people are looking up to him. It's an empowering mechanism. Faith. Faith even in people. They're dependent on you. You have no choice. It's a pelvic thing. What about necessities versus luxuries? Yeah, okay. That's right. Definition. <laughs> now he says we can understand what Moshe Rabbeinu was saying over here. And he quotes here a beautiful Sephora on the Chumash that we quoted. Did I bear this people, give birth to them? Where am I going to have food for them and meat for them? What's the connection? What's Moshe Rabbeinu saying this whole story here? From here you could learn Had Moshe been their father, then he would have been able to provide. Moshe Rabbeinu said, I'm not their father. Where am I going to get, get flesh for them? Where am I going to get meat for them? In other words, Moshe Rabbeinu is saying, if I would be their father, don't worry. I'd be able to provide them. I could provide all their needs if I would have a father-child relationship. But because I don't have that relationship, there's no way that I could provide them the impossible. Now he quotes here Sephora. She says like this, Because children depend on their parents. They think their parents are everything. Right? My father is the strongest, the greatest, the smartest, the richest, the everything. Right? That's what they're supposed to think at least. They rely on him. They depend on the next paragraph. And the father therefore provides. Since they don't rely on me and they don't have faith in me, how am I going to be able to provide them? He says, look at the words of the Sforno. A father can lead and take care of his children. Because people, the children, think of the father, that he loves them. You rely on your father that loves you and he'll do whatever is necessary to do the best for you. They don't trust me at all. They suspect me. And they're testing me and challenging me. They want to see, no, what are you going to do for me? What have you done for me lately is what the Jews are doing. Yeah. Okay, so you split the CS. What are you going to do for me today? They don't have a father-child relationship. They don't trust me. They keep challenging me and testing me. In that case, may I in Libosar, where am I going to come up with meat for them? And they know I can't provide them with meat. So when they're crying and crying and saying, give us meat, as if I have meat, when they know that I don't have it. As they're crying as if to say that I'll be able to fulfill their desire. That's only a challenge and a test to see if I'm doing it, if I could come to you and everything else. That's what Maishu Rabbeinu was saying. I don't have the empowering mechanism of faith to provide them. Continues Reb Chaim Shmulevitz. With this we could understand what Chazal say, that it is as difficult 
to provide the sustenance, the mezainus of a person, like the miracle of Kriyas Yamsuf. Now this, of course, is a very difficult chazal to understand. In the first place, what exactly is the connection and the relationship between Kriyas Yamsuf, a supernatural divine miracle saving the Jews, and the daily parnosa that a person is provided for through natural means? What's the connection? What's the correlation between the two? That this is like this. What is Mizayinus? What is Parnosa? Have to do with Kriyas Yamsuf? Where's the relationship? Also, the term caution that it's as difficult. What does it mean that it's as difficult? Who's it difficult for? It's difficult for Akkadish Baruch Hu to provide Parnosa as it is for him to split the sea. Are either of those actually difficult by Hashem? Is it difficult for Hashem to provide Parnosa? Is it difficult to split the sea? So he answers because Kriyas Yamsuf, according to Chazal, also resulted because of the emuna and the faith that the Jews had in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He brings down the Yalkut Shemoni in Shemois that says the following, That it is sufficient, the faith that, that they had in me when I took them out of Egypt, says Hashem, for me to split the sea for them. Which faith is it referring to? So he says the faith that it's referring to is They didn't start questioning Moshe when Moshe told them, let's go into the wilderness. How could we do that? We don't have provisions for the journey. They had faith. And they followed Moshe. And as we find, it says, Hashem says, I remember the faith that you had. When you were, when we were betrothed, when we were young, when we were, when our relationship just began, you followed me into a wilderness where where nothing grows, where there is no grass and there is no provisions, and you followed me blindly. Based on this Yalkut Shemoni, we see the relationship. When the Jewish people left Mitzrayim, they had to have a certain reliance and a dependency on Hakadosh Baruch Hu and a faith that he'll provide them. Provide them with what? With Parnosa, Be'eretz Lo Zeruah, where nothing grows. As we said in the beginning, rainfall, the buddings of life that rain provides, is a miracle like the splitting of the sea. And here we see a step beyond. The splitting of the sea was the result of that self-same same faith, that same empowerment that comes from the dependency and the faith that, our, that Klal Yisrael had in Hashem to provide them with Parnas in the Midbar was the Kayach of Amuna, was the empowerment of the faith that provided for the splitting of the sea. The truth is we know beyond that because we know that until Nachshon ben Aminadav went into the Yamsuf, until according to, to some statements in Chazal Shevet bin Yomen went into the water and until Nachshon ben Aminadav was able to say the water was up to his nostrils and that's when Hashem split the sea. It was a tremendous test of faith. Speak unto Bnei Yisrael. Let them journey into the Yamsuf. Into the Yamsuf as it is before it splits. Let them journey into the Yamsuf and show an act of faith and dependency and reliance on Hashem and Amunah and Bitochen and then the Yam will split. The Yamsuf split as a result of faith. Kriyas Yamsuf was a miracle that came about solely as an act of faith that Klal Yisrael had in Hashem and that they followed him blindly into the sea. But the Yalkut Shemoni takes it a step further. It was not merely the faith of walking into the Yamsuf, but the entire process of the Exodus required a faith in Hashem that He will provide, that He will provide Parnosa. 
That's what the question means. That's what the difficulty is. The difficulty is this faith, this tremendous faith that a person has to have, and that's the relationship to Parnosa, to the daily Parnosa, because you have to have faith in Hashem that He'll provide for the rainfall and He'll provide for your Parnosa. That's a difficult test of faith, just like the test of faith required to split the sea. But even further than that, we see from the Yalkut Shemoni that it was the direct faith in that Hashem providing Parnas in the Midbar, which results in Kriyas Yamsuf. So there again, we have the relationship between faith in Parnasa and that results in the splitting of the Yamsuf. And the reverse is true as well. The same kind of faith and the same kind of miracle that provides for the splitting of the sea is the same kind of miracle that provides the reward or the person that has faith in Hashem that He will provide him with a parnasim. His words are, "Ki kishem sheshinu yateva shoyah bekriyas yamsuf hoyatoli bebitochni Yisrael ba'kadosh baruch Just as the supernatural miracle of kriyas yamsuf was dependent on the faith that the Jews had in Hakadosh Baruch Hu that empowered the miracle, umikoyach lamuna ba'kadosh baruch Hu kaviyochol, and it was the power of that faith in Hashem that changed." The supernatural that changed supernaturally the course of nature. Likewise, a person's sustenance, his parnasa, is dependent on what? On the bitachem that a person has in Hakadosh Baruch And according to the amount, according to the measure of faith that you have in Hakadosh Baruch Hu, to that extent is the amount of the divine flow of sustenance from above. The amount that you empower Hashem with through your faith, that's how much He gives you your sustenance. You provide the power down here, you generate the power through the power of faith that goes from earth to heaven. And Hashem reciprocates in kind by providing the divine flow of Parnassah. Just like we see earlier, the rainfall falls from the heavens only in the merit of the Balei Amona, only according to the measure of the empowerment that those that have faith have in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's how much rain comes, that's how much Parnassah comes. It's the exact same lesson that we've had till now. According to the amount of faith, you empower HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and that's how much provision is provided for. This is the relationship between Koshim Zainois of Shalobam to Kriyas Yamsuf. Because Kriyas Yamsuf came about through Emuna and Bitochen and through the empowerment of faith. And precisely the empowerment of faith in Parnassah, according to the Yalkut Shemoni, is what brought about the miracle of the Kriyas Yamsuf. And with this concept, with this faith or lack of it, he explains another interesting story that's brought down in Sefer Malachim. Even when Shefa, even when the divine flow comes to the world, different people are going to get different parts of that of that benefit. And not everybody is going to merit to benefit from HaKadosh Baruch Hu only in the proportion to the amount of faith that he has. And he says the, this shot in the following story. We know there was a famine in the land in the days of Elisha and the king of Aram came and besieged Shamron. There was a drought, there was a famine, they were besieged and people were starving. Elisha gives the following prophecy. He says, Shimu Hashem, Hashem, This time tomorrow, a saw of solace, a fine flour, will be going for the price of a shekel. And two measures of barley will be going for the price of a shekel in the gates of Shomron. And one of the, the um, 
assistance to the king said, that's an impossibility. If Hashem would create windows in the heaven, can this happen within a short period of 24 hours? In other words, there was a drought, there was a famine. The price of bread in Shomron was going for astronomical amounts. Elisha now gives a prediction, tomorrow there will be such a bounty and a plenty that there will be deflation to the point of where you'll be able to buy vast quantities of fine flour for, for a pittance. So the Shlish said, that's impossible. How could that occur in 24 hours? Even if Hashem would allow for rainfall, it would still take many months till we could bring it to all to harvest and that this should indeed occur. Right now, the prices are so high, skyrocketed because of the inflation, because of the scarcity of the material. How could it change immediately overnight in 24 hours? Said Elisha to this assistant, because you doubt the word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you will see it occur but you will not benefit from it and it goes on over there in the story that what happened was three lepers came into the encampment of Aram and they found that it was deserted apparently Hashem brought great sounds and, and all kinds of uh, confusion in the camp of, the, of, the, of Aram and as a result they deserted their entire encampment they then went to the gates of Shomron and they told the people over there that the, that, the, um, that the king of Aram and all of his army deserted their encampment and all the spoils are there for us to, to take. The gates were opened, the people descended like a flock, like a mob, and behold, there was so much plenty and so much bounty that as Elisha predicted, within 24 hours they were able to buy a saw of fine flour for the price of a shekel. But this assistant to the king was standing by the gate and as the people mobbed out, they trampled upon him and they killed him. He saw the fulfillment of the prediction, but as Elisha said, he was not able to partake of it and he died. Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, why was he Chayiv Misafort? Why did he die? Even though generally a person that violates the words of the Novi's Chayv Misa, but he didn't really do actually anything that he should be Chayv Misa for over here. He didn't really violate the words of the Novi. He just didn't trust him. He didn't believe in him. And for lack of faith, that shouldn't be enough to be Chayv Misa. So he says it's based on what we said earlier. Faith empowers. Lack of faith has the opposite effect. Because this assistant to the king didn't believe, therefore he was not able to derive the benefits of that faith and of that belief. Elisha makes a prediction from Hashem. If you believe in the prediction, you're going to be empowered and you'll benefit from it. But if you don't trust, if you lack the faith, you will not get the mazal, you will not get the sustenance from that shefa, from that miraculous flow from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And therefore, since this was a massive amount of shefa, he, as an individual, died in order that he shouldn't benefit from it. What Reb Chaim Shmulevitz is saying is that it wasn't as an act of punishment as much as it was an act of Mida Kineged Mida. People were starving. They were going to die anyway. Many people were starving like the lepers themselves were saying. If we don't go give ourselves up to the camp of Aram, we're going to die of starvation. We might as well surrender. Upon surrendering, they discovered that the camp was deserted. It was a miracle. People were suffering. They were dying. You don't believe you're going to continue on that path and you're going to die and everybody else that does believe 
they are going to be able to benefit from the miracle. It was a miracle that gave life to the Jewish people in Shomron at the time. It was a miracle that, they, that most of the people believed in and had faith in. This assistant to the king, he had no faith, and therefore he didn't deserve to live miraculously like everyone else, and therefore he as an individual died to demonstrate what lack of faith can do. And speaking of wells, he brings down here another interesting medrash in Vayikar Rabbah that he says over there that Rabbi Yaisi used to sit and learn by the mouth of a well, of a stream. And it seems that a ruach, a spirit, the spirit of the well, or the, uh, kind of a dibuk or whatever it was that used to inhabit that well, appeared to him and he said to him, Atem yudatim kamashonim shani shayrapai. For many, many years I resided and I lived in this well and I never harmed anybody. I'm a peaceful, nice, gentle dibuk. I'm a gentle ghost. I'm a friendly ghost, if you will. I'm a friendly spirit. I never harmed anybody. But now there's this big, bad, mean Ruach Ra who wants to take over. This mean spirit, this bad, evil, wicked spirit wants to drive me out of here and he wants to inhabit this well and he's some evil spirit. He's going to harm the people. But what could I do? I have to fight him off. And I don't have the power to fight him off. What should you do? He tells him, bring out all the people of the city to the well and let's have a cheerleading section. Let's have cheerleaders. Bring them out. Let them have hammers and pots in their hands. And when you see that there's a disturbance taking place in the water, you will know that we're having our battle and that we're fighting each other. At that point, bang on the pots and pans, and everybody yell out together, Didan Natsach, Didan Natsach. Our side is winning. Our team is winning. The Loizazu Misham, it says, when, they, when the people did this, they saw, they saw little droplets of blood on the water. And their Ruach, their spirit, that spoke with Abu Yaisi, won and vanquished the evil spirit against them. Continues the Medrash. A Kalvuchimer. A lesson from here. The Ruchos were not created, they, they need support from us. Nevertheless, they need support. They don't need our support, and we don't support them. There's no interaction between human beings and Ruchos. Nevertheless, they could still use a cheering section. Human beings that are interdependent one on another. We certainly need each other's help, and Siyua certainly does work and helps us. Here the Medrash is telling us 2,000 years ago, they knew the psychological advantage that a home team has when they have cheerleaders and when they have a cheering section and they have the home team rooting for them. That's what this Medrash is. We all know that when there's a game, the home team has a psychological advantage. Because when you have your people going rah, 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 and cheering them on and you have the cheerleaders coming out and dancing and jumping up and down and the people are saying go team go and they're rooting for their side that empowers them there's an empowering mechanism in cheering is what it's saying over here not only is faith empowering but cheering someone on yelling and screaming empowers people the cheering section of a game of the home team where the people are rooting for their own team empowers the team even though they normally don't have the strength. That's what the Ruach was saying over here. The Ruach was saying, I'm a weak spirit. 
I'm not as strong as this powerful, mean spirit that's coming. If I fight him, he'll win. But if I have your help cheering me on with pots and pans, yelling and screaming and saying, Didan Natsach, Didan Natsach, our side is winning. That's what it means. Our team is winning. Go team, go. And you're yelling and rooting for your own team. That's going to empower me. And with that, I'll win. And it worked. The Medrash says, take a look at the psychological advantage of Siyua. Take a look at the psychological advantage of cheering someone on and the empowerment that comes about from rooting for someone and from cheering them on and from being in the home team. The Gemara, the Medrash already recognized this psychological truth that when people have faith in you and they cheer you on, that's empowering. And even if otherwise you would lose and even if otherwise you're weak, this alone is sufficient to help you overcome odds and to vanquish foes that you normally wouldn't be able to. It's a Peladiga insight. It's a Peladiga insight in human nature, but it's also a truth about the empowerment of faith and the empowerment of, of a sense of rooting for someone and that in itself empowers. And he goes on to take this to the concept of leadership. A leader could only lead successfully if the people that he leads have faith in him. And if they lack faith, if the popularity rating of a leader goes down, then he becomes disenfranchised, he becomes disempowered, and he actually can't lead, and he will not be successful. We know this to be a truth nowadays, that when leaders lead and they have the support of the people, then they emerge victorious, when, and, they, and they're able to lead properly. When, when the reverse is true and their popularity goes down, then they have less power. They actually have less power. And he proves this from Yiftach. Yiftach Hagilodi, who was the leader of a bunch of brigands and a bunch of uh, um, thieves and lowlives, was, was told by the people of Gilad. They asked him to lead them in battle against B'nai Ammon. And he answers them, if you allow me to be your leader, and if I emerge victorious, you'll make me your leader, then fine. And then it says, Yiftach said all of these things before HaKadosh Baruch Hu in Mitzvah. Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, Yisrael wasn't just seeking honor and glory for himself. Because if that would be the case, then the Pasuk wouldn't continue to say that Yiftach spoke all of these things before HaKadosh Baruch Hu in Mitzvah. What does it mean that Yiftah spoke before HaKadosh Baruch Hu? That he's seeking honor, he's seeking glory and kavod. Obviously Yiftah was trying to tell them a very important lesson. Yiftah says, if you trust me, if you have faith in me, enough to make me your leader, that I should be your leader. Not only in this battle, but in war and in peace as well. If you look at me as your leader in war and in peace, then I will have the power to vanquish the Bnei Ammon and to vanquish them and to defeat them in battle. I could only be a good general if you view me as more than just a general. George Washington was a great general, therefore they made him a president. What Yiftach was saying over here was that if you want me to be a great general, you have to then afterwards respect me and make me the president. The reason why it was more important for Yiftach to say this than for George Washington is because Yiftach was initially just a leader of a band of brigands. He wasn't a person that was well-respected or liked. He was really chased away from the people. They looked down at him. 
Now they come to Yiftach and they say, well, we know that you're a warrior, you're a good highwayman, maybe fight for us in battle. Yiftach said under those conditions, I'll never vanquish them. I could be a good highwayman, I could be a good uh, chief of a bunch of robbers, I could be like a Robin Hood and lie in the forest waiting for people to rob. But if you really want me to be a general in battle, I need respect. I need your faith. I need the empowerment that your respect and your faith give me. If all you want to do is utilize me and use me, use me as, as a kind of a, of a Robin Hood and try to employ me as a mercenary, a mercenary I'll never be successful as. As a mercenary, I won't be able to defeat the Bnei Amun. They're too powerful. I have to be a general. I have to be respected. I have to be a leader. I have to be a president. Therefore, if I am victorious, you have to be willing to take upon yourselves that I'm your leader and I'll be your president after that. The opposite of the way it worked with George Washington. Here, he asked them to make him president if he's a successful general rather than, than over there like with George Washington. But the reason is because he needed their trust, he needed their faith. This is what Yiftach told them. If you look at me as a chief and a leader of the Jews, I'll have the power to vanquish them. If you view me only as a plain, simple person, as a hedyot, you only want to use me to fight battles as a warrior, like a mercenary. To use my, my empty brigands and to use them in battle. Then I will not be able to vanquish the Bnei Amon. Because my people, my small little band of, uh, of uh, robbers over here is insufficient to fight off the mighty army of the Bnei Amon. To utilize me to fight the Bnei Amon the way you people think of me right now, I'll never be successful because the Bnei Amon are more powerful than me. But if I know that you view me as your leader and you trust in me and you have faith in me, then that will empower me to overcome and vanquish a foe that's more mighty and more powerful than I am right now. The power and the empowerment of faith and trust is such that you can overcome much greater odds when people have faith and trust in you. This is true spiritually, this is true physically. Whether it's a Rosh Hashiva, whether it's a general, whether it's a leader, whether it's a secular leader, a president, a king, if you have the faith of the people behind you, you can lead them and you can lead them successfully and you can overcome foes and vanquish enemies that are much more powerful. Because the faith and the trust that people have in you, that empowers you to overcome greater odds. But with the lack of faith, if it's not there, you will never be able to overcome greater enemies. You can only do as strong as you are. Yiftach was successful and he overcame the Bnei Amon. And the Bnei Amon had a more mighty, powerful army than Yiftach because he had the faith and the trust of the people that backed him up and that empowered him. Continues Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, what is the lesson of this? If faith and trust empower others, then certainly faith and trust in oneself can empower oneself. If you could empower others with faith, if you trust yourself, if you have faith in yourself, you have confidence in yourself, you're able to empower yourself and to, and to unify in yourself powers beyond, beyond boundaries, limitless powers to be able to do great deeds above that 
of normal human capability. With enough confidence and trust in oneself, you could overcome the greatest odds of all. And he says, where do we see this? He proved this from Ramban. It says in Shemais, when the people finished with the Mishkan, they brought their things together by Yavoyu Kolisha Libai. All those people that their hearts lifted them up to donate and to devote themselves. And all those with a generous spirit, they brought the Trumas Hashem. And it's referring to the, what we call the Chachmele, those of wise hearts that actually constructed and put together the Mishkan and did all that Hashem told them. Says the Ramban, Because the Jews themselves did, weren't architects, they weren't artisans, they weren't craftsmen. Where did they have the power to be able to do the things that had to be done? Where did they do it without studying great courses and going to universities and making all the preparations to be able to do such an architectural um, feat of building a mishkan? They had to construct it, they had to put it together, they needed great craftsmanship and artisanship. They weren't sculptors, they weren't artists, where were they? They didn't have a malam with someone to teach them. They didn't have these talents. Where did these talents come from? They found it within their nature. They found themselves naturally endowed with the talents to do this. Where did they get these talents? From Because they lifted up their spirits in the way of Hashem. They had confidence to do the right thing and they trusted in themselves that Hashem would help them to do the work of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And Hashem, that, that's going to work and that will meet with success. In other words, says the Ramban, that each person, although they lacked the talent and the skills initially, they came before Moshe and they said, Moshe, I'll do it. I'll do the job. They came before Moshe, and they told Moshe, I'll do it, whatever you want, I'll do it. Where do you have the skills? Where do you have the training? Where do you have the learning? Do you take any courses on it? Nothing. No training, no skills, no towns, none of these things. No courses, no education, no, no apprenticeship. They all of a sudden found the talents within their hearts to do it because they said they're going to do it. Because Vayigba Libay Bidarkei Hashem. Says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz, we see from the words of the Ramban. They were not experts in their field. They weren't craftsmen that had previous training and apprenticeship in this field before that. They just decided they felt that they are endowed with a natural talent and they trusted in their empowerment as it says their hearts were uplifted in the ways of Hashem. And with this power and this strength, they were able to accomplish all that they accomplished. They were successful. In this week's parsha, we have both lessons. We have the lesson of Voish Moshe of Mikola Adam, humility, modesty, that Moshe Rabbeinu was, feeling of lowliness. But it doesn't mean feeling low. It doesn't mean to feel down. It means that a person shouldn't be haughty and conceited and arrogant. You have to be modest. You have to be humble. But there is a place for gaiva. There is a place for not arrogance and it's not conceit and it's not haughtiness. But it's a place for pride and confidence. And where is that? 
When you know that you have a job that has to be done, a mission that has to be accomplished, you have to do something for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. A person shouldn't be faint-hearted and say to himself, I can't do it. I don't have the talents. I don't have the abilities. No. Seize the bull by the horns. Go ahead and do it. Feel the confidence. Feel the pride. And here, it's not gaiva. It's by Yigba Libai B'darke Hashem to feel that uplifting of spirit, that feeling it can be done. It requires a sense of boldness and bravery and courage to do it. But that requires a little bit of what we call Gvalev, of having your heart feel up. You have to feel like a person who can do it. It requires confidence, which is the opposite of shiftless. That's the opposite of the person that feels incompetent, that feels like a lowly person. Anivus, the Anivus of Moshe Rabbeinu is wonderful and that's something that a person has to strive for but that's to avoid conceit to avoid arrogance to avoid haughtiness of spirit on the other hand to be Hashem is not only permissible but that's something that empowers the person that in itself gives you the Kayach and this is true physically and it's true spiritually and therefore he ends off saying, this Yisoyed, this principle, is the prerequisite for the Hatzlochah of every Ben He shouldn't give up hope. He shouldn't say he doesn't have the power, he doesn't have the Kishron, he doesn't have the mind to be able to do what has to be done. And he shouldn't feel a sense of, of, of hopelessness from learning. If you trust your abilities and your powers, you will be empowered. And you believe in yourself. You believe in yourself that your destiny is to become great in Torah learning. And you fulfill the Pasik of feeling this, this uplifting of spirit in the ways of Hashem. You will become powered. You will become mighty you will actually be given the strength and the power and the empowerment and you will actually then rise to the occasion and be successful in your endeavors here we don't look for modesty when a person has a job and a mission that has to be done you have to have the confidence and the courage and the boldness to go ahead and do it you have to rise to the occasion be a man when there is nobody around to do it. You get up and you do it even though you say, how could I do it? I'm a nobody. You're not a nobody. If you think that you're a nobody, you are a nobody. But if you think you're a somebody, you will be a somebody. And that feeling, that empowers a person. It goes together with You have to have faith and confidence in yourself together with your faith and confidence in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But if you have that, that will empower the person and he'll be successful and he'll take a grow to be a Godel B'tayr. This is a very important lesson to B'nai Torah, to B'nai Yeshiva, especially that they shouldn't, they shouldn't feel the sense of Yish, the sense of that all hope is lost. You have to grab the bull by the horns and go ahead and you do it. I once heard that the, that the genius of Albert Einstein, they once asked his son, what was the genius of his father? He said, because he never gave up. Most people, when you, when you knock your brains against something and you're unsuccessful, you feel washed out mentally and intellectually and you don't try a second time. Some try a second time. Some will even try a third time. But the feeling of never giving up 
and trying with and exerting yourself with all your power time and time again and not taking no for an answer saying I'll do it I'll do it again and again until I get there that's the genius that was the genius of Albert Einstein according to what I've heard but that's the secret and the key to success to never give up to rise to the occasion you will find yourself empowered and your bitachon will be rewarded by HaKadosh Baruch Hu. your faith in Hashem will be rewarded with the empowerment of faith it's true when it comes from one person to another when people are dependent on you that empowers you when people cheer you on and they root for you that empowers you and when you have faith and confidence in yourself and in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that too empowers you and that's what leads to success the key to success and accomplishment is faith and courage the Kayach of Amuna, the empowerment of faith and trust in one's abilities and in HaKadosh Baruch Hu to provide him with the means and the wherewithal with which to achieve and to accomplish that success